We come to our last message today in our study of the life of Elisha, our miracle man. 2 Kings 13, our message will be entitled, Blessings from Bones. Now, one name that is largely forgotten today is George Whitfield, but he was probably the most famous preacher of the 18th century. Newspapers called him the marvel of the age. Uh, Whitfield was a preacher who was capable of commanding thousands, not only in England, but also America, through the sheer power of his oratory and his personality. In his lifetime, historians tell us that he preached over 18,000 times and saw thousands come to know Jesus Christ, which was a phenomenal feat in the days of horse and buggy. In 1770, George Whitfield began his final evangelistic crusade at the age of 66. And by this point, the rigors of traveling and being an evangelist were starting to take their toll on Mr. Whitfield. And he sensed that the end was near, which I believe that God does for His children. He gives them dying grace. And as he came to the end of his life, he wrote this final entry in his journal. Here's what he said. Lord, I'm weary in thy work, but not of thy work. I have not yet finished my course. So Lord, if it be thy will, let me speak for thee once more, and thence I will come home. On September 29th, he arrived at a little town in New Hampshire called Exeter. And a crowd assembled when they found out that Whitfield was in their midst. He stood in the center of town atop a whiskey barrel, and he preached his heart out. The message that he preached came from 2 Corinthians 13.5, which says, Test yourselves and find if you are really true in the faith. He kept his audience spellbound, listen to this, for two hours. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to preach to you today for two hours. But he had so many onlookers there that people just stood in amazement. One man who was in the crowd, an eyewitness, wrote of that experience. He said, The preacher rose up sluggishly. His voice was hoarse, his limbs heavy, but after gaining strength as if from the Spirit of God, his lion-like voice roared across town. He preached for two hours. He gave an invitation. People responded. And after finishing that meeting... A few men helped the aging Whitfield onto his horse, and he continued to his next destination, which was a town called Newburyport. His plans were to spend that night with a friend. And as he arrived there, just before sunset, he walked up to the stairs there, about to go into his bedroom, and he held a candle in hand. He turned to his friend who was providing lodging that evening, and he said this, I have outlived many on earth but they cannot outlive me in heaven. My body fails, but my spirit expands. And in a moment of eerie foreshadowing, it said that Whitfield blew out the candle. He continued up to the steps, into his bedroom, and sometime during that night, he went on to be with the Lord. Now for a man who desired to die in the pulpit, he nearly got his wish, didn't he? His final day on earth was a shining example of being faithful to the Lord to the very last breath. And that's what I want to do with my life. 
And because of Whitfield's ministry, two continents were shaken for the gospel, and a testimony like that still inspires us today. And so I believe that everybody today wants a great spiritual legacy like that. We all want a legacy that will live beyond us, that will touch others for God even after we have finished our race. And the reality is that we can do that because we all have something called influence. No matter how small or how unimportant we may perceive ourselves, we all influence somebody and God expects us to be good stewards of that influence for the sake of the gospel. One man who's written about this is a leadership guru. His name's J.R. Miller. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, There have been many meetings of only a moment which have left impressions on my life for eternity. No one can understand that tremendous, mysterious thing called influence. Yet every one of us continually exerts influence either to heal or hurt, to bless or curse, to build up or to break down. He said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Now, this provides a segue into 2 Kings 13, where we see the final days of the prophet Elisha. Just as Whitfield preached his last sermon, blew his candle out, and went on to be with the Lord, this is about what is to happen in the life of Elisha. In 2 Kings 13, we have his final day, and we have his final swan song sermon. And like Whitfield and like the prophet, they were faithful to the end. And what you're going to see here is that Elisha's last breaths were used to influence others for the kingdom of God and the word of God. And here as we close this chapter in Elisha's life, I want us to see three important lessons about what it means to live a life of influence, what it takes to leave behind a spiritual legacy. And so number one, what we notice here, first off, is a life of influence is determined by our intimacy with God. If you want to have influence... You have to have intimacy with God. Notice what verse 14 says. And then, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, if you're keeping tally, about 40 years have passed in the record of 2 Kings since we last heard or saw anything from Elisha. The last mention of him up to this point is chapter 9 and verse 1. Now we don't know why, but the Word of God skips over decades in the man's life and now takes us to his deathbed. And Elisha, as we have noticed and journeyed with him, he's come a long way from being that obscure, unknown farm boy that Elijah picked out by throwing his mantle over his shoulder one day. How many of you have figured out by now that in life it's not about where you start really that matters, it's about where you finish with God. And Elisha has walked with God for many years. He's done incredible miracles. You'll remember he asked his mentor if I could but have a double portion of your spirit and wouldn't you know if you start counting the miracles in his life, Elisha did exactly twice the number of Elijah. Time and time again, this man has been the instrument of God's deliverance for his people. 
And we read here in verse 14 that the anointing of God was so strong on his life and so revered by the king that the king is coming to him for counsel. Reminds me of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. what it says there, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And so we see here that Elisha's on his deathbed and the king comes to him for counsel. That's influence, right? When you have influence over the most powerful man in the nation. And we see here that as the king arrives at Elisha's bed, he sheds copious tears. Now, don't get the wrong impression here. I don't think that he's crying because he's about to lose a dear friend. He's crying because he thinks that with the death of Elisha will come the end of God's blessing and favor for his people. You have to keep in mind that at this time, Joash, the king, he is fighting an ongoing war against the Syrians. And Joash fears that if Elisha dies then so too goes our greatest weapon against this war with our enemies. And so that's the reference there when he says, what about the horsemen and the chariots? And what Joash seems to be saying here is that Elisha and his influence and his connection with God is more valuable than all the armies in Israel. In other words, what he's saying here is, Elisha, what are we going to do? You're about to pass from this earth. How will we defeat the enemy if we don't have the man of God in our corner? As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of an old Cherokee proverb, old saying that come from the Cherokee Indians. It goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. And I think we see that coming to pass in Elisha's life. He was so influential and so unique because he had a consistent walk with God. We don't read in his life any portion of his life where he falls in apostasy or where he gets trapped up in temptation or sin. He doesn't have illicit affairs with a woman. Uh, there's nothing to besmirch his record. Here was a man who walked day after day, year after year with God, and God had put the stamp of approval on his life. And as I read this, I'm challenged and I say, God, I want that kind of influence. I want that kind of anointing on my life. And friend, if you are going to be committed to that kind of life, let me tell you, there's no shortcut to holiness. You have to be committed to the long haul of walking and serving God day after day, year after year. And it makes me wonder, what do you think Elisha's been doing for the past 40 years? Because if all those decades go by from 9 verse 1 to now chapter 13, and we don't read anything about his life, there's no miracles being done, no deliverance happening, what is going on with his life? And the only thing that I can conclude is that in those intervening years, he's just living for God. He's just staying faithful to God in the grind of life, in the mundaneness of ministry. And friend, don't you know that's where about 90% of your ministry takes place in the trenches, in the mundane of life, in the busyness of day to day, in just the average week, month, year, and so on. And we are very enamored by the supernatural. But the bulk of ministry happens... In obscurity. Think about Jesus. Jesus spent 30 years of His life unknown to the world. 
getting his training in the sawdust of Joseph's carpenter shop. And then three years of ministry that absolutely changed the world. Moses was like that too. Moses spent large chunks of his life either tending sheep on the backside of a desert or wandering in the wilderness with a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious people. And what I see from this is that a life of faithful service is something that accrues over time. It's like making tiny deposits every day into a spiritual bank account. And as you are faithful to do that, faithful to live for God, to be God's man or God's woman wherever He's placed you, it adds up over time so much is the point that when you come to the end, you have tremendous influence over people. They want to know, give me your wisdom, give me your word, what should I do? I want that kind of mark on my life. And so here's the principle that I see today. To have a life of influence for God, we must have a life of intimacy with God. Right? You can't give what you don't have. And as you spend time daily in the presence of God, He'll change you, He'll transform you, He will equip you so much that you will then have the power of God on your life and people will notice, and that causes a thing called influence. Now, Billy Graham, he wrote a, a great story in one of his books about a man that he knew named Mr. Jones. And Mr. Jones was the CEO of a large company. And this man had a routine. Every day, he instructed his secretary as he went in to the office, he said, hold my calls, hold any visitors, don't let anybody in this office for the first 30 minutes of the workday because I have a very important appointment to keep. And so this man did this day after day, year after year. And one morning, the chairman of the board arrives there. And he comes into the office and he barges into the secretary and he says, I've got to see Mr. Jones. It's a matter of utmost importance. It's urgent. And the secretary stands there in front of the door and says, I can't let you in there. You have to wait. He's in a very important meeting. And of course, this chairman of the board, he's a very impatient businessman, doesn't like to wait, doesn't like to be inconvenienced, and he's pacing around, and all of a sudden he loses his patience, and he just knocks on the door, there's no response, jiggles the handle, no response. Finally, he barges into this man's office, and he notices there is Mr. Jones on his knees, kneeling at his desk in fervent prayer before God. And he realizes, I've intruded in on something sacred. And so he kind of backed out, gently closed the door. And as he did, he turned to the secretary outside and he said, Is this normal? And she said, Yes. She said, Every morning, Mr. Jones spends the first 30 minutes of the day in prayer. And the chairman then turned to her and said, Well, no wonder why I come to him for advice. <laughs> You see, the difference, the intimacy of God, the walk that he had with the Lord is the power behind the influence that he had. And if you want to live a life of influence, friend, listen to me, it's determined by our intimacy with God. And then there's another lesson here that we need to learn, and that is number two. A life of influence is developed, watch this, by increasing our faith in God. By increasing our faith in God. So from Elisha's sickbed here, he has enough strength to muster one more message. And it's a symbolic object lesson that he teaches King Joash. Read with me verse 15. 
And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows, and then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and it opened. And Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Wow, what an interesting object lesson. So the bow and arrow, that's obvious. That is a picture of the military might of Israel's armies. And when the prophet places his hands on the king's hands and they draw the arrow back and let it go out of the window, it's a symbol, it's a picture that the power, the anointing, the blessing that was on the man of God is now resting on the king so that when he releases the arrow, it's a sign that God's power is going to travel with them into the battlefield and what was on the anointing of Elisha is now being passed on to the king so that they can be assured victory that day. So he gives the king an ironclad promise of winning on the battlefield. And the reason why Elisha does this is because he's trying to teach one final lesson. And that is this, that the power and the presence and the anointing of God is something that transcends generations. It doesn't stop just with one prophet or one preacher, or one good teacher, or one pastor, or one missionary, God's work continues to be passed on to those who will sign up and say, Send me, Lord, here I am. God's power and blessing don't stop when His servant dies. And think about this. Even though Elisha may not live to see the victory on the battlefield, what he is saying here is that the resources and the power of God will still be available to the king as they were when Elisha was alive. The only condition was living by faith. So think about this. God buries His workers, but the work continues on. Moses led Israel out of Egypt, but it was Joshua who led the Israelites into the promised land. David got the privilege of buying the land, but it was Solomon who would get to build the temple and see the temple filled with the glory of God. Jesus was the one who paid the price for salvation on the cross for our sins, but it would be the apostles and the disciples that He had raised up to take that message all across the world. And the same God who wrought miracles through Elijah and now Elisha is now going to be the same God who's going to fight for Israel at their time of need. And friend, what a message of hope today that God is faithful in every generation to complete the work, to continue the work that was started in the past and goes on to another generation. Friend, I believe today He's the same yesterday, today, and forever that nobody has a corner market on the anointing of God. If He was with Whitfield, if He was with Moody, if He was with Spurgeon, if He was from Billy Graham and Wesley, then praise God, He's going to be with His people today in this house, in this time, because He's still got a mission to be fulfilled. There's still battles to fight. And my God is still on the throne anointing and empowering and giving His blessing for His people. That leads us to another lesson here. Notice this. Elisha has faith in God. 
But what he wants the king to learn is you need to have your own faith in God. We can study the people of the past, the great preachers, the great missionaries, the great saints of God, the people who influenced you. They can inspire you. They can encourage you. But friend, listen to me. You can only piggyback off their faith so far. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And that's why He's doing this for the king. Elisha is saying, look, you need, it's time for you to man up. It's time for you to develop your own walk, your own faith in God, because I'm not always going to be here. You need to learn how to shoot your own arrows and fight your own battles and walk with the Lord. That's his lesson. That's his legacy. And notice the, 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 the next part of the lesson that he gives to him. Verse 18. Look at this. This is so powerful. Verse 18 says, And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What's going on here? This is a test. Elisha is testing the faith of the king. And he says, all right, take the rest of those arrows that you have there in the quiver. Take them and fire them out the window just like we did before. So we would assume that if he had ten arrows left, he should have shot all ten, right? But the Bible says he doesn't do that. The Bible says Joash, the king, only shot three. And when Elisha saw that, he became angry because he limited the victory by his own faith ceiling. You see what happened here? He says, look, you should have emptied that thing out and as many arrows as you would have shot, God would have given you that many victories. But you only shot three and you're only going to enjoy three victories. God wanted to give him complete and total victory. He wanted to give him so much more. But he stopped too early. And what a tragic misstep. Because, think about this, the king had been given basically a blank check by the prophet. Joash could have been the king that completely drove Syria out of the land for good. But he was handicapped by how far he was willing to go in his faith in God. A faith ceiling. You heard of the glass ceiling? How about a faith ceiling? Notice what's happening here. Elisha in his final lesson is trying to inspire faith in the next generation. And he's trying to help them to understand that you can trust God with everything. But Elisha was only able to take the king so far. The king's influence, his impact could have been greater had he exercised more faith in God. And here's the principle that I want you to see. Write this down. The scope of our influence is limited by the size of our faith. Here's what I mean by that. The influence that we can have for the kingdom of God is in direct proportion to the steps of faith we are willing to take. Does that make sense? If you are willing to go all the way with God, you can have great impact. But if you stop at three, if you won't get out of the boat, you can't walk on water. I wonder as I thought about this, what blessings 
What miracles, what victories are we leaving on the table, so to speak? Are we leaving behind? Because we won't go further with God. We won't take that next step. I'm going to tell a little story here. I love my nephew, Kendall. Many of you know him. He's grown up to be a great, upstanding young man. He's a patrolman out in uh, Canton, so watch out when you're driving through Canton, okay? But a few years ago, we were about to celebrate Kendall's birthday. It was going to be a Sunday afternoon. We were celebrating his birthday, and one of his favorite meals is spaghetti and garlic bread and chocolate cake. How's that sound? Well, my mom, she goes all out for birthdays. So she fixed his favorite birthday meal. And we gather, and we wait around, and we wait around. We say, where's Kendall? I don't know. I hadn't heard from him. And we wait around a little bit more. Where's Kendall? I don't know. I hadn't heard from him. Finally, the phone rang. Uh, hey, man, Ma, this is Kendall. I decided I think I'm going to go out and go fishing with my friends instead. We all do dumb things when we're 19, don't we? So the party went on without him. And I think I got to eat extra chocolate cake that day because he missed out. Needless to say, I don't think there were many chocolate cakes waiting for him after that. But I thought about that. There was a sweet blessing waiting for him. All he had to do was show up and claim it. And yet, he left it on the table. And that got to thinking about our lives with God. How many of us have unclaimed blessings, victories that God wants to give us, blessings that He wants to hand to us, but He can't because we aren't willing to go further with Him than where we are right now? Wouldn't it be tragic if we were to stand before the Lord Jesus at the Bema Seat Judgment one day and He were to say, Derek, come in here, and He takes us into a room and it opens up and there's tons of packages, I mean boxcars, and boxcars of blessings. And he said, Derek, I would like to have given you these things in your life, but I couldn't because you limited what I could do. You wouldn't go further with me than what I wanted. And so you see here that the scope of our influence is limited by the size of our faith. A life of influence, what's it all about? Well, it's determined by our intimacy with God. What you develop in God in private comes out in public. Then number two, a life of influence is developed by increasing our faith. We don't stay the same, we grow with God. And then thirdly, a life of influence is displayed by our lasting impact for God. A lasting impact. Notice verse 20 and 21. So Elisha died and they buried him. And now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Wow! Elisha had one more miracle left in his bones. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said this, Elijah was honored in his departure but Elisha was honored after his departure. And this is probably one of the most unique miracles in all of the Bible as far as I know 
besides the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus, this is the only example of a posthumous miracle that I can find in the Bible. And yet God brought blessings from the bones of this great prophet. And as I thought about that, listen, Elisha had more power dead than some preachers I know have power alive. There was more power in his dead bones. And think about it. As the body of that man was thrown hastily into that tomb, they saw the enemy advancing. The Bible says that that body touched the bones of Elisha and he sat up sprang up. Think about it. Everywhere that man went from that day forward, he was a walking endorsement, a walking billboard for the power of the prophet of God and his influence over the people. When people saw that man walking around, say, Hey, I thought you died. What happened to you, man? Well, crazy story. They went to go bury me. They threw me in there beside Elisha's bones and the spirit of life returned back to me and I'm here. I guess God's not done with me. What kind of testimony you think that would give around Israel? You see, God was reminding His people that He was not done with this great prophet. That this man's influence was still at work even though his bones lay moldering in the ground. And when they saw that raised man walking around in new life, they would think about Elisha. They would think about how the anointing of God rested upon him. They would think about his miracles raising the dead and curing uh, the pot of stew and making the axe head raise in the Jordan River. And they would think about his great miracles. And friend, listen to me. Here's the point of the whole thing. God has done this miracle not only to show His people, hey, I'm not dead, I'm not done, but I believe God has done this miracle to show, listen, that the person who really lives in faith, the person who really lives for God, never really dies. Their influence is able to reach out from beyond the grave and still touch people's lives and still have an influence. As I read this story, I also see a great foreshadowing of Jesus. Don't you? Because think about this. As an Old Testament type, Elisha prefigured later what Jesus would do. Bringing life from a tomb. Where have you heard that before? How about the Easter message? Think about these men as they discovered the new life from the tomb. The Bible says... They ran away because the enemy was coming. When the disciples came and discovered the empty tomb and that He was not there, that Jesus was alive, what did they do? They ran out and told the message. And Elisha's great legacy statement was that there was a man raised to life still preaching the message of the power of God. And Jesus' great legacy statement is all around the world, down through the ages, He's raised up people from death to life giving them spiritual life from death. And they are now, the church is now, you and I are now testimonies that God is still a work in this generation. Now think about it as prophets go. Elisha was probably the best and the greatest. But even his ministry is unable to prevent Israel from falling into total idolatry. And in just a few chapters, if you keep reading, you find out that they are destroyed by the Syrians and deported. 
And so as you close the life of Elisha, what you realize is, man, he was great. But we need somebody more. And that was ultimately fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. We need a prophet with the same anointing, the same power to raise the dead. And we need a prophet who won't end up dead in the ground, but who can conquer death and come out and promise us victory over the enemy. And that ultimately came in the fulfillment of Jesus' life. And the good news today is that when you live your life for Christ, you never really die. I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man were to die, yet will he live again. And here's the principle. Write this down. When we live a legacy of faith, God can reap spiritual fruit from the influence we leave behind. The thing we need to ask ourselves about this passage as we read it is, are there going to be any living monuments around that will testify to the faith that I lived my life? The deposit that you leave behind in the hearts of people is what is your legacy. And friend, here's the good news. God may yet do a great work in your life. You may not live to see it, but the influence and the impact that you pass on to another generation can still be spiritual fruit that accrues to your account. And God can bless a life like that. In my Bible, I carry this picture around with me. It's my bookmark. It always marks the place where I'm preaching on Sunday morning. Some of you don't know this lady. This is Aline McCarson. I think that picture was taken sometimes in the 1960s. My memo was the reason that my daddy was taken to church. My mama was a spiritual leader in my dad's home because my papa didn't live for God for many, many, many years until his very last days. She's the reason why my dad and my two uncles and my aunt made it to Mount Pisgah Baptist Church up Pisgah Highway every Sunday to hear the message. She's the reason I know why my daddy got saved because she was a praying woman. She died in 1991. She had colon cancer. She was 58 years old. I was about Daniel's age when she died. And friend, here's the point I want to make to you. This woman, I know she prayed for me. And I know she influenced me because I can remember walking in her house. I remember her making biscuits on the counter and her listening to Square Parsons on the radio. I can remember the way that her, her Bible sat and the way that she turned the page. I can remember the faith of this woman. And friend, listen to me. She never lived to see the day for me to preach a sermon. But every time I raise up in the pulpit, I feel the influence of somebody in the past who said, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to take my family to church. I may not live to see the fruit of generations and generations, but I'm believing God that He'll do something in my family and in my life. And friend, I'm telling you today, this preacher has seen it happen. It's happened in my life. 
And what I want to say to you is don't stop at three arrows. You keep shooting. You keep living. You keep praying. You keep believing because there's future generations. There's future generations that sang today. And what you leave behind in their life, they're going to carry forward. So pay it forward. Invest in tomorrow and you'll see God bring fruit to your life. And one day, when it all comes into accounting, the Lord will say, Oh, aren't you glad you prayed? Aren't you glad you gave? Aren't you glad you did the hard thing? Because look at the fruit that came from your life. Even after your life ended here on earth, there was fruit to be seen. And friend, I'm looking forward to the day when the gates of heaven are open. And I can run through the streets of gold. I'm going to my Jesus. And I'm praising Him. And I'm casting my crown. And then I'm going to my memo. And I'm saying, thank you for praying. Thank you for living for the Lord. Thank you. Because it made a difference in this old boy's life. And every time I raise to preach, I feel the Spirit. I feel the influence of those who came before me. And I say, God, I can't give up on you now. They believed in me. And they believed in you. Friend, if there was ever a reason to give your life to Jesus, that would be it. Do you know Christ today? Are you playing games? Our musicians are coming. If you need to come to Christ today, you need to rededicate your life. You need to say, hey, I had been taking my spiritual legacy, all that, seriously. You come today. You give it all to the Lord. You live by faith and you will be amazed at what God will do with your life. How He can work through your simple influence. Preston's going to lead us as we stand to sing today. Hey, you need the Lord today. Come on.